stealing George's ship since 1968. Welcome back to Lyrics for Lunch. The show that just wanted to tell you some fun stories about songs, but thanks to human nature, we can't. No. No <laughs> fun. <laughs> no fun will be had. I thought you were saying no to my intro. I was like, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> no, no, I love it. Okay. I'm your host, journalist Lindsay Tucker. I'm joined today, as always, by Aviv Rubenstein. Aviv, hello. Hello. Yes, it is I, Aviv Rubenstein. Who are you? I'm me. Okay. Uh, I am a filmmaker and musician and writer and lover of music and musical facts and lover of just ruining people's favorite songs at parties. That's our jam. Ruining your favorite song. I'm very excited to talk about our artist today because I've never liked him. And now I can now I, I will have like good ammo to to against the people who do like him. <laughs> I've literally never given a shit about him. You, you didn't you were missing some ammo. Um, I suppose. I mean, maybe. I guess we'll find out. There's. Um, I usually I learn a lot during these episodes. So who's to say? All right. Well, uh, who are we talking about today? Who are we talking about today? We are talking about Eric Clapton, aka Derek and the Dominoes, and their big Super Smash hit song, Layla. Yes, it's Layla. But before we do that, Ugh. there's a there's a you know <laughs> current events. We talk a lot about interpolations and who owes what to whom in this on this show. And just yesterday, news broke that Olivia Rodrigo is now giving the singer Haley Williams and the guitarist of Paramore writing credit, partial writing credit on Good For You, which is a song on her on her album Sour. And I have mixed feelings about it. It's Haley and one other person. I think Justin. Yeah, Josh. Josh, Justin Faro or whatever his name is. (laughs) Um, We're nothing if not prepared on this show. Yeah, we're doing a great job. So a little backstory. There was a conversation that we never aired in which Aviv played Sour for me on the air. And I responded to it. And... um, the first thing I said when I heard that song, and it's I'm not original in any way because literally everyone and their mother that first heard that song said the exact same thing, which is this song sounds exactly like Misery Business from Paramore. Um, since then, countless internet mashups have come into our lives, which I have enjoyed in my car, at spin class, everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing, though. How similar on a scale of under pressure and ice ice baby that's like the top right yeah to like nothing at all how similar are these two songs are you not, uh, not aware i sent you the mashup like eight weeks ago i mean i know i've heard i am on tiktok i've heard hundreds of mashups so but, i feel like they're it's past five if it's if it's one out of ten it's past five but it's just the one part right and so this is this is part of the part of the construction of this of both songs is that they have this like grand pause so it like makes it very easy to mash up because you can just stop one song and start the other and they have roughly the same chord progression and they're roughly in the same key but like the melody doesn't seem to me to be 
similar. So it, I definitely feel like it has been inspired by Misery Business, just like Brutal was inspired by The Breeders or something like that. But like, it feels weird to me that we're giving writing credit for like vibes now, and it opens kind of Pandora's box for artists like Bruno Mars who like have made their entire career off of like doing vibes of other artists right like finesse is just a bell biv devoe song like does bell biv devoe get writing credit and money from the bruno mars song finesse well hold or on. A band like is paramore getting money from this little writing credit if you get a writing credit you get money that's the only reason you would fight for a writing credit is to get paid that was my next question were they fighting for it so this is this is a good this is actually a good question. There's kind of no way to know. There's famously this happened a few years ago with Hozier's song "Stay with Me." That's Hozier, right? Yes. Um, and he basically sang the chorus of "I Won't Back Down," which is the Tom Petty song. And Hozier was like, "Whoops! I like kind of habituated that in my brain and didn't really realize what I was doing." And Tom Petty was like, "That's chill. I get it." And Tom Petty's record label was like, "Money, please." And Hozier, to his credit, was cool about it and like gave that writing credit. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what this story is. Um, there are some people on TikTok speculating that TikTok is what did it, because of course they are. But who, I don't know who instigated it. I have to believe it was someone from Paramore's camp, because I doubt that anyone from Olivia Rodrigo's camp would voluntarily like give away some of the credit and money unless she was feeling insecure about it you know like because i was looking at this last night like trying to find out if paramore was making a big stink about it i didn't find any evidence of that so me neither i don't want to i don't want us to make assumptions that they were uh also and there was a little bit of a stink before from courtney love when like olivia rodrigo did like a prom dress kind of crying prom dress thing that was like an homage maybe to a whole album cover which was in itself an homage to carrie Carrie and courtney love was like you could have just asked me i'm like okay like there's no literally no reason for you to be fighting about this it is very stupid yeah so i i think it's good and i hope that it came from olivia rodrigo's team i doubt that she has very much say over like specific legalities just because she's a teenage girl and she has a bunch of lawyers that do that for her you know, like anyone would, but um, I'm hoping that they did it preemptively to just be like good, like m- to be like mentions about it and that it wasn't a like, I'm we're going to threaten to sue you and blah, 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 because that sets like a really weird precedent for a bunch of other artists and like where do you, now where do you draw the line with like inspiration versus copy copyright? holding and i say this as someone if you listen to our episode on interpolation i say this as someone who like steals songs all the time i think i wonder if it has anything to do with her popularity because if she had just put out these songs into a vacuum and you know but like driver's license was the number one song of the year and she's under a microscope now and so while someone else could have put out songs that were similar in this way yeah Yeah. and no one would have said anything and because she is so young and you know she's definitely uh under a lot of scrutiny for everything she just done 
scrutiny that like other groups are not so like Greta Van Fleet comes to mind who I once again I like I like Greta Van Fleet but everyone just needs to come clean that Greta Van Fleet is like we're gonna be Led Zeppelin one and like that's okay and none of their songs are ripped off from Led Zeppelin but just like the whole vibe is and so are we gonna see Robert Plant and Jimmy Page suing Greta Van Fleet for like identity theft essentially and like they're ones to talk because we'll you'll hear we'll we'll do a led zeppelin episode eventually but like they stole all their songs from black blues blues musicians so it's it's a like i said i don't i'm not against it i'm not for it i just like have a lot of weird feelings about it i could see that you do i was like why do you want to talk about this well it's therapy um no no i'm glad that you brought it up and i i forgot that we didn't air that other conversation of like me reacting or both of us really yeah we did like a whole listen through of (laughs) olivia's album um maybe we should put out an olivia rodrigo bonus episode with that (laughs) yeah i'll go i'll go back to if you can remember what episode it was embedded in i'll go back through and dig it out i think it was nwa Uh, i think you're right because that's the only episode i recorded in my bedroom besides this one and I remember, and remember I was in there when you were playing it. <laughs> okay. Well, let's uh, stay tuned. Hopefully, this is this is going to come out on like a Friday. So if we can get the Olivia Rodrigo audio out from the from the stacks, we'll drop that on Monday. Cool. The Monday after you're here. If this. if it's useful, if we find it. Yeah, if it's usable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. If it's not like on fire somewhere. <laughs> Or just dumb, and and this and this uh, topic will kind of rear its ugly head once again. It basically does every week, but if this topic will rear its ugly head once again in this episode as well. Will it? It will for me. I think it's more than interpolation, but we'll talk later. Yes, we will absolutely. I mean, it, yes, that is more than interpolation. Okay. So someone's got a lawsuit on their yeah. hands. Great. So Layla, mm-hmm. are you ready for me? I'm. I'm. I. I you've got me on my knees. All right. Uh, Layla and Other Assorted Love Songs was recorded in 1970 by Derek and the Dominoes, which had been formed in the spring of that year by Eric Clapton. Who is Eric Clapton at this point, Aviv? Who is he in the world? What's his place in it? What's his place in the world? So Clapton is a British blues guitarist, and he was in his first band was the Yardbirds, which also had members of Led Zeppelin in it. Right. Mm -hmm. And jeff beck as well and then he the yardbirds i don't know if he had i don't i can't think of any yardbirds songs like in my head but then he was in cream in like the mid 60s and that everyone know the song that everyone knows from cream is white room right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's the song that nick andopoulos learns the only song that nick andopoulos can play in freaks and geeks freaks and geeks has been so much on my radar today oh have you seen it Freaks and Geeks? Oh, of course. Multiple times. Okay. I love Freaks and Geeks. And then Derek and the Dominoes. But I think that there was like a couple of groups. He was he was basically like a guitarist for hire. So he played on a bunch of records and like was he in the band versus was he just like on the records? Who who the fuck knows? Um, but then his next big band was Derek and the Dominoes. And after that, I think he just went solo and he like was Eric Clapton. And sang a bunch of hit songs correct for years and years and years. correct after that he was the famous the famous eric clapton and he became but one might almost call him infamous and let's find out why 
And there's like a there's like a Clapton is God thing, right? Where like he has the slogan of like he's he's the best, and he's got like nicknames. I, I you can hear the disdain in my voice. I have always hated Eric Clapton. Okay, so Derek and the Dominoes featured Clapton on guitar and vocals, plus three other former members of Delaney and Bonnie and Friends. And those people were Bobby Whitlock on keyboard, Carl Rattle on bass, and Jim Gordon on drums. And this quartet also formed the basic band for Clapton's solo debut album, Eric Clapton, which was recorded from late 1969 to early 1970, but it was not released until August of 1970. And when was uh, Layla and other assorted songs released? I know it was 1970, but like what, what month? That was released on November 9th, 1970. So he released two records under two different names with the same lineup within five months of each other. Mm-hmm. Great. Almost the same lineup because Clapton asked Dwayne Allman to sit in on the recording of Layla and other assorted love songs, which he did before he died in October of 1971 in a motorcycle accident at the age of 24. Wow. So the death of Dwayne Allman is a story that my dad's been telling me since I was really young. I do not know why you would tell young, your young children this story, but this is my dad's sense of humor. Maybe to never get on a <laughs> motorcycle. He thought it was funny. Uh, he has an interesting sense of humor. And Russ's story goes like this. Dwayne Allman crashed his motorcycle into a peach truck and died. So what did the Allman brothers name their next album? Eat a peach. Ha <laughs> ha. Oh, gross. Okay, but in researching this episode, I found out that that isn't even true. My whole childhood gross. is a lie. <laughs> this, is the same, this is the same thing that happened with me in our Hallelujah episode. <laughs> I had to go read the Bible about it. But yours turned out to be true, right? Mine's mm-hmm. not well, true. Yours could... no, Dwayne Allman died while the band was working on Eat a Peach. Okay. Did he crash into a peach truck? No. Dwayne Allman died while the band was working on Eat a Peach, which eventually hit number four on Billboard. On the afternoon of his accident, Dwayne Allman was speeding along Hillcrest Avenue in Macon, Georgia, on his Harley Davidson Sportster when he slowed to let a flatbed truck carrying a huge crane boom make a left-hand turn in front of him. Allman pulled his bike toward the center of the road so he could swing around the outside of the truck, but in the middle of its turn, the flatbed suddenly rumbled to a stop. Unable to maneuver around or under the giant obstacle, Allman ran right into it. The crane's weight ball knocked him off his Harley, which bounced up into the air and off of Allman's chest before skidding to a stop along the curb. Oh, my God. The guitarist was not killed instantly. In fact, oh. he had no visible injuries except some bumps and scrapes, but he died in surgery later that evening. I hate that. Almost exactly one year later, the Allman Brothers bassist, Barry Oakley, died in a very similar accident. He crashed his Triumph into the side of a city bus just a few blocks away. Curse of the Allman Brothers, I guess. Yeah. By the way, at the end of Layla, Dwayne Allman produced the crying bird sound with his guitar while Clapton played acoustic. And this was a tribute to Charlie Parker, a jazz legend known as Bird. Charlie Bird Parker. But also, like, weirdly, there's like another, there's like a George Harrison connection because it's like, while my guitar gently weeps, which was before this. What's the connection? Because the guitar is gently weeping. Oh, the crying bird, the weep. Yeah, yeah, it's like like cry, yeah, crying. Yeah, so Gently Weeps was on the White Album, and that came out in 1968. So a couple years, couple years before this. Mm-hmm. Stealing George's ship since 1968. Yeah, I guess so. Spoilers. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> All right, let's get back to Derek and the Dominoes. 
The album was fairly successful in the U.S., where Layla and Bell Bottom Blues both charted as abbreviated singles. The album did not chart in the U.K., though. Weird. And the band split up in 1971 without completing their second album. And Clapton, like, quote-unquote, retires at this point from music because of a heroin addiction, which we'll talk more about later. Oh, okay. After Almond's death with Clapton out of the biz, the album starts gaining traction, kind of like a piece of folklore, like we've talked about on the show in the past. It's like, you got one dead guy, you got one retired guitarist uh, with a heroin problem, and now everyone wants to listen to this music. Yeah, the band becomes legendary because they like made one album and then broke up and someone yeah. died. Uh, so Layla was re-released as a single in 1972, this time at its full length of seven minutes. And it hit top 10 in the US and the UK. So wait, the, the original version was, was... A bridge single. Cut? Yeah, I think I glossed out. I said it was a bridge single, but I didn't say what was abbreviated about it. Yes. Yeah, so what was abbreviated about um, it? The whole end part. The piano the part. The piano part. That feels like a second, a different song. Yes. Okay, sure. So are we ready with this? Or without further ado, do we want to hear the song? Okay, I'm ready. So I think the riff is really good, and then everything else about the song is horrible. Yeah, I agree that the riff is really good, but what do you find horrible? So the riff is in A minor, right? It's like this cool kind of rock riff. And then the the verse is in a major key, which is like fine but like it going from the minor to the major like that isn't, like doesn't doesn't tickle my brain mm-hmm. the singing arguably the terrible singing is, yeah it's fine i mean like that I don't, I don't care about as much and i'm like i'm reading the lyrics along and with the, with the video here and i'm not, not super impressed It feels kind of like a jerk-off song where, like, everyone's just kind of soloing and doing little runs and no one's really, like, it's not super cohesive. Yeah, it is a little schizophrenic like that. So it's gone B part, A part, B part, A part, B part, A part, B part, B part. And now we're about to get into the like second half of the song, which is a completely different song and kind of all instrumental and longer than the part of the song that everyone like jams to 
So the original, like, abridged radio edit ended around here, is what we're, is what we're thinking. It's, it's right here. Yeah. But it doesn't, like, end. It just, like, they would just have to have faded it we out so just, that this part doesn't come in. Yep. So this is, like, yeah, 3.15 in the song. And now we just have like a piano instrumental and more kind of weird solos for the next four minutes. What's there not to like? I like this part better. I don't. I'm like, ah, oh, Billy Joel. Yeah, maybe that's why I don't like <laughs> yeah. it. Because it's very Billy Joel. And it, ha- it, it just like... It doesn't fit either of the other tones of the song. It's like a third kind of element that doesn't gel with either of the first two elements, which don't which don't really gel together. And it's like not really Clapton's fault, but I like I associate this with Goodfellas because it plays a really prominent role in Goodfellas, and like that's kind of a red flag is like people who fucking love Goodfellas. Yeah. Which is like a totally fine good movie, but like people that idolize that movie, I don't know. Man. The thing is, Goodfellas is a good movie, and you could probably like it if people didn't. Yeah, the fans are the ones that yeah have hijacked it. Right. I like. I mean, I like Goodfellas, but some people are obsessed with Goodfellas. Right. And that to me is a is a is a red flag. (laughs) So here's 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 the deal, listeners. 
there's going to be a lot of Layla slander in this episode. It's okay if you don't agree with how much I hate this song. I am not personally attacking you by not liking a song that you like. So I still think each and every one of our listeners is a wonderful person with a lot to give to society, worthy of love. But I fucking hate this song. Oh my God, we get it. Okay, this isn't all about you. Stop making it about you. Can we please carry on with the chlorophyll? What is the song about? Uh, this song is about someone getting him on his knees and he's begging her darling, please. There's like n- no substance to the song, but I know about being an alive human being that he wrote this about George Harrison's wife. Yes. Clapton wrote the song about supermodel Patty Boyd, who at the time was married to George Harrison. Boyd is widely considered one of the greatest muses of all time, having inspired the Beatles song Something, Clapton's Layla, and Wonderful Tonight. Naturally, I have mixed feelings about this whole muse thing, which we talked about at length last week. Yeah, with for Hey There, Delilah. Yeah. Tell me, tell me if you Yeah, so categorizing, especially because it's a woman thing. So categorizing Mm -hmm. a woman as a muse takes away her identity as a human person with their own talents. And it's like the manic pixie dream girl thing. She now exists to bring out the best in these men who need her. Yes. To to go deeper into that too, depending on how involved the muse the muse quote unquote is in the artist quote unquote's work is referring to her as a muse might be a way of stripping her of the credit that she is due for actually contributing to the song. Uh, exact 100%. Yes. In this case, very little. But in other right. cases, yes. Yeah, we lump the mu- all the muses together. Yes. Delilah and Layla and someone who actually wrote the verse to the song Court- and never got credit for Courtney it. Courtney Love. We yeah, don't even Courtney call her Love. a muse. We just call her a murderer. Um, okay, so in July of 2018, Taylor Swift interviewed Patty Boyd for Harper's Bazaar. Oh, wow. And the article, at least the web headline is, Taylor Swift interviews rock and roll icon Patty Boyd on songwriting, Beatlemania. And the power of being a muse. I'm, I'm pretty shocked and impressed that you managed to get Taylor Swift into this episode. <laughs> Remember, I sent you a text and I was like, I just found the best thing ever. And like a Taylor gift. A Taylor, yeah, you did send me a Taylor gift. I didn't. I, th- I thought that that was just one of the, your run of the mill Taylor <laughs> gifts. No, that was an Easter egg. Great. All right. So I will be reading from this now. In the 1960s and 70s, Patty Boyd stood at the intersection of fashion, rock and roll, art, and fame. Widely considered one of the greatest muses of all time, Boyd, who was married first to George Harrison and later to Eric Clapton, inspired the hits Something by the Beatles and Layla and Wonderful Tonight by Clapton. Recently, I devoured this intriguing woman's memoir, Wonderful Tonight. A few weeks later, I had the pleasure of sitting down with her in the kitchen of her beautiful Kensington flat. As the sunlight poured through the windows, her blue eyes lit up as she spoke. There is a playful quality about her and, surprisingly, considering how much she has experienced in her life, a lightness. Stick to music, Taylor. <laughs> I promise you an associate editor wrote that paragraph. Yeah, I, it, it feels like a man wrote yeah. it. Yeah. It's like, oh, her blue eyes sparkled. What an incredible, interesting woman. <laughs> Would you care to join me in a dramatic reading? yes who, who would you like me to be uh, um i'm obviously going to be taylor this time because you've been taylor Perfect. every other time That's okay. 
<laughs> the je- jealousy is an ugly cologne <laughs> on you, Lindsay. Uh, so I'll be Patty. You're Patty. Supermodel Patty mm-hmm, Boy. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm getting into character. I've been so excited to talk to you because we're both women whose lives have been deeply influenced by songs and songwriting. I stand on one side of it and you on the other. Does the concept of being called a muse feel like a correct fit? I find the concept of being a muse understandable when you think of all the great painters, poets, and photographers who usually have She's British. One or She's two. British. I find the concept of being a muse understandable when you think of all the great painters, poets, and photographers who usually have had one or two. I don't know why you wanted me to do that. <laughs> the artist absorbs an element from their muse that has nothing to do with words, just the purity of their essence. How do we want to respond to that? I'm nauseous. Um, <laughs> I, I find the concept of being muse understandable when you think of all the great painters, poets, and photographers who usually have had one or two. The artist absorbs an element from their muse that has nothing to do with words, just purity of essence. I mean, I think all she's saying is like, I am the next in a long line of people who have inspired great artists. And like, maybe I, I, f- I feel like the, the subtext is like, that she kind of feels lucky that, that this is who she was or is. But yeah, I feel like dream a little bigger, darling. See, I read it a little bit differently. Like that line, the artist absorbs an element from their muse that has to do with mm-hmm. the purity of their essence. That to me feels like I'm, if I'm Something the artist, yeah, her. like I'm just going to absorb you yeah. into me and steal this from you. And now it's mine. And like, yeah. So I, th- but I think that, I think I do you think that she is aware of that melancholic kind of something was taken from me? I do because I've read her You do. I've read her memoir and she's mm. she went through a lot and to kind of gain back her own independence and her own identity after getting I'm not even sure what the word is I would use. I feel like these two men He sold you to humble pie <laughs> for fifty K fifty dollars and a case of beer. What kind of beer? Right? That's like who she is. <laughs> Which is, I mean, like, like I, I'm not saying that that's who she is meant to be or that's all she is, but that's how they're treating her, right? Yes. Yeah. So they, they kind of tore through her and then she was left to pick up the pieces and figure out who she was. And she did. And we, we don't need to go super deep into that here. Um, it's also weird that the top of this harper's bazaar article is this is taylor right that photo photo is taylor yeah that is what i wanted to ask you about next like let's look at the photos (laughs) that's taylor dressed as patty basically that's weird and then go down i don't love that there's the two of them oh and taylor and patty dressed the same she looks a little like rosie perez yeah okay i feel weird that taylor has such a presence like a visual presence in this as the interviewer, but whatever. Yeah, and we didn't see the layout in the magazine. Yeah, it could be different. It looks like she was the cover model. If you go all the way down, there's a Harper's Bazaar cover, and it says, Fashion You'll Love, Taylor Swift on Patty Boyd. And then there's like multiple covers that they show with Taylor, all of these outfits inspired by Patty Boyd. Okay. On that note, here's Taylor's scorned lover, John Mayer, talking about Layla. Oh, good. You know whose opinion I desperately wanted in this situation? John Mayer's. Uh, Layla's very interesting, where it lives on the guitar. This sort of... It's a really clever, clever place on the guitar. 
It's a clever place on the guitar. Okay. I'm learning so much. It's really he's, t- he's basically talking about it switching sort of from the minor backwards. to the major. Like we're talking about. Right? It's it's inverted. You have to hit the hammer-ons the right way. It's it's. You do have to hit the hammer-ons it's, it's like, the right it's way. It's a tricky, tricky song to get the feel right on. This thing. Those notes are not... You have to... got to sound like okay. you got to play like it's Mary Had a Little Lamb. Okay. That was fun. <laughs> Thanks, John. <laughs> In the Harper's Bazaar article, Taylor mentioned that she had recently read Patty Boyd's biography, Wonderful Tonight, which came out in August 2007. So on its 11-year anniversary. Yeah, basically. And a lot of the research that I pulled for this episode came from that book as well. Um, it's, it's a decent read. I mean, it's it's a little bit trite. It's a lot of name dropping. It's I liked it better when I was younger when I read it because it does give you a really fun behind the scenes look at, you know, the Beatles in India and Yeah, that era. Yeah. yeah. Um however, upon rereading it, I was like, this is very poorly done. But the story is moving. Um so Boyd was an influential model in the sixties and seventies who was also a photographer in her own right. And the book is riddled with her photos, which are also really cool and another reason to pick up the book. Um Boyd met twenty one year old George Harrison on the set of a Hard Day's Night film in March nineteen sixty four when she was just nineteen. Wow. Hard Day's Night's great. It's weird. <laughs> I like it. Okay. The whole thing about Ringo's uncle, hilarious. <laughs> They're pretty funny. Um, and this passage is from the UK's Far Out magazine, and they have a funny way of writing magazine articles in the UK, so let's have fun. On the morning of March 2nd, 1964, a 19-year-old Patty Boyd flagged down a taxi to Paddington Station. She's been instructed by her modeling agency to meet three other models under the station's clock at 8 o'clock sharp. From there, they join a train halfway down Platform 1 and meet the film crew. That's where the instructions ended. Patty had been working nonstop modeling jobs for a few years after moving from her parents' house in South Kensington, where she shared a dingy apartment with a friend. She eventually established herself as a fresh-faced, wide-eyed model-to-be, working three to four jobs in a single day. In November of 1963, she was given the opportunity to say a few lines in a Smith's Crip. Smith's Crip. Crisps. Pardon me? Well, they had a typo. They wrote Crips, but I'm pretty sure it's Crisps. <laughs> she, she was a member of the Crips. <laughs> she was even given the opportunity to say a few lines in a Smith's Crisps television commercial directed by up-and-coming Richard Lester. It was her very... Richard Lester who directed Hard Day's Night. Yes. We're getting there, Aviv. Hold your little horses. Okay. Well, we said she was already... We already said she was in Hard Day's Night. I'm making connections here. So happy for you. It was her very first acting job, and she later recalled, for someone who is as cripplingly shy as I was, it was quite an ordeal. (laughs) (laughs) A few days later, when her agent, Cherry Marshall, called to tell Patty she was booked for an appointment with a casting agency, Patty wasn't expecting much from it. She assumed it would just be another ad casting, one where she'd be modeling clothes or products. 
but as she strolled up to the Park Lane Hilton at one o'clock, she was surprised to see director Richard Lester again. He couldn't disclose any information about the project to her. It was top secret. She only found out later that day when she got a call from her agent congratulating her for landing the part. This wasn't just any old shoot. She was going to be in a hard day's night. The first ever Beatles film. The Beatles were like the Avengers. <laughs> they just like gave her one page of the script at a time. <laughs> I think she only had one line, but... I have seen the movie and I do not remember her in it. I'll show you her, but not yet. Not yet. The movie was to capture a scripted 36-hour day in the boys' lives as they prepared for a big television appearance. They'd start at Mary LeBone Station. Then hop on the train to escape the hordes of screaming fans that had been chasing them for miles. In the train car, they'd beat a few schoolgirls. That's where Patty came in. Oh, I hate that. <laughs> right? No, I don't want to do it. I can't do it, she told Cherry. Boyd wasn't an actress and had no aspirations to be one. The idea of having to act and speak in front of a camera terrified her. But Cherry assured her she'd only have one line, and this would be a huge thing for her career. So, there she was, arriving at the station in a schoolgirl uniform, gray pinafore dress, crisp white button down striped tie and white over the knee socks i'm it, that's an interesting kind of thing that's a little alien now is like a 19 year old girl who is uncomfortable in front of a camera uh glad you brought that up aviv it's very true especially well she's a model I'm, now every single teenager thinks they're an instagram model but especially for someone that's a model Kids these days <laughs> yeah especially for and like like a a, a moving picture camera was like much rarer than like a still camera back then but like now basically every 19 year old has had a camera in their faces the their the entirety of their life yep which is shitty well <laughs> shitty yeah the train came to a grinding halt at a station 10 minutes outside of london then four boys hopped on board popping into the schoolgirls' train compartment for a quick introduction this is a quote from patty on first impressions, John seemed more cynical and brash than the others. Ringo the most endearing. Paul was cute, and George, with velvet brown eyes and dark chestnut hair, no one talks like this, was the best-looking man I had ever seen. Would you describe someone and say, chestnut hair? No. At a break for lunch, I found myself sitting next to him. Being close to him was electrifying. It's electrifying! Woogie woogie woogie. <laughs> Uh, that's from Greece, but you haven't seen it, so you don't know. Still haven't seen it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So now we're gonna watch the clip from Hard Day's Night. Yeah. Excuse me, madam. So that's boy. Excuse oh. me, but these young men are sitting here. Wondered yeah. if two of us could come over and join you. I'd actually myself only I'm shy. Oh, actually, we're just good friends. I'm sorry, miss. You mustn't fraternize with me prisoners. Prisoners? Convict in transit, tipping old legs, the lot of them. You are. You are. Get out, ladies! Get out while you can! Excuse me. He seems passable. Passable as what? An actor? Yeah. I was named the minister, they don't want to go! Sorry for disturbing you, girls. I bet you can't get what I was here for. And she doesn't seem like a not good actor. Yeah, she, seemed, she did good. Fine. Yeah. So, as film ended for the day, George turned to Patty and said, Will you marry me? But yeah. Okay, great. And she laughed because she wasn't sure if he was being serious or not because they were being, you know, joking around all day with the girls. Yeah, and like if you look at those bits, they're all like like of that nature. Too, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh so she didn't respond and then he said, "Well, if you won't marry me, will you have dinner with me tonight?" 
Will you have dinner with me tonight? (laughs) 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 Patty had a boyfriend, photographer Eric Swain, so she declined. (laughs) Do we have another Will situation? No, because the next day, her friends were flipping out at her, saying she's an idiot, insane person to turn down a beetle. And she wasn't super into Eric, unlike Delilah and Will, so she dumped she dumped Eric. <laughs> dumped Eric on the spot. Exactly. And then she had she and George had dinner. Ooh. And Brian Epstein chaperoned them. <laughs> no. Boo. <laughs> Boyd I don't like I don't like the last name Epstein and the word chaperone in the same sentence. I understand. Boyd said I didn't resent his presence on our first date. He was good company and seemed to know everything about wine, food, and London restaurants. And perhaps if George and I, two very young, very shy people, had been on our own in such a grown-up restaurant, it would have been too intense. Okay. Epstein, you know, was, um, he handled everything for the Beatles. They relied on him so heavily for literally everything. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when Patty and George went to get married in January of 1966, George asked Epstein's permission. Oh, wow. Uh, That's weird. (laughs) I don't love that at all. Uh, Epstein agreed, but said that the ceremony had to be tiny and secret, and they couldn't have it in a church. So they got married at the Epsom Registry Office in Surrey. So tiny and secret because if the Beatles are married, then they're not heartthrobs anymore? No, no, no. Um, They just didn't want the press to get a hold of it beforehand. I gotcha. Which didn't... It, I mean, it, it got leaked to the press anyway, and the press did show up, but it would have been, I think, a lot worse if it was in a church. You know, the Beatlemania, yeah, big ceremony, Beatlemania yeah. was in full effect. And so Patty said, it was not the wedding I had dreamt of. I would have loved to be married in a church, but Brian didn't want a big fuss. They all trusted him so implicitly that when he said it should be a quiet register office wedding, George agreed. He also said it had to be secret. If the press found out, it would be chaotic. So a couple years later, the late 1960s, after the Beatles returned from the ashram where they famously wrote Dear Prudence and basically the entire White Album, it's like 68, Mm -hmm. this is when George first starts showing signs of depression. So they have a happy, they get married, it's not her favorite idea of a wedding, but then they're happy, they get a house together, they're doing lots of Beatle-y things, she's hanging out with other Beatle wives, then they go to India, and... Do drugs. Do lots of drugs. Do lots of meditating. When they get back, this is when things start to fall apart. Boyd wrote in her book, Wonderful Tonight. Oh, the book, the full title is Wonderful Tonight. George Harrison, Eric Clapton, and me. Weird. Here's what she wrote. We had learned to meditate at the feet of a master. Despite the allegations, George and I still regarded the Maharishi as a master. We had been shown the way to spiritual enlightenment. We had returned from Rishikesh, renewed and refreshed. And yet from the time we left India, our lives and our friendships seemed to fall apart. So quick aside about the Maharishi allegations. It's pretty well documented that the Beatles left the ashram early after a rumor circulated that the Maharishi, who was the leader of the Transcendental Meditation Movement and their spiritual guru, had sexually assaulted some of the female meditators at the camp, including Mia Farrow. Oh, Okay. And then later in 1987, when the Maharishi was living in a high security complex on the outskirts of Delhi, the Telegraph newspaper of Calcutta alleged that five boys had died after being used as guinea pigs in the Ashram's Medical Institute. Those are in quotes. Searching for cures for cancer, heart ailments, and AIDS. But nothing was ever proven. Well, I mean, it's the Beatles were notoriously not good to women, especially John Lennon. So it's good to see that they made the right decision to leave this place while after learning that he had done potentially some fucked up things. Yeah. 
But so I didn't realize that Patty went with them to India. Yes, she was there on that famous trip where Mia Farrow was there and Prudence Farrow was there and Donovan was there and Mike Love was there. Mm. And so they so they still worshipped at his feet even though they had heard the allegations, which ain't great. Yeah, she said, what did she say? We still regarded him as a master. Woof. Yeah. Okay, so Boyd says that George grew very intense in India and that being there seemed to answer some of his life's nagging questions but had also taken some of the lightness out of his soul. He retreated into himself and his spiritual practices, meditating, chanting constantly with a prayer wheel. He became obsessive and withdrawn and depressed. And it's around this time that Boyd says she started thinking about suicide. She writes... She began thinking about suicide. Yeah, that's what she wrote. She says... I don't think I was ever in any real danger of killing myself, but I got as far as working out how I would do it. I would put on a diaphanous Aussie Clark dress and jump off beachy head. Jesus. Yeah, pretty dark stuff. Yeah, and that's like, even though she says that she probably wasn't in any danger, that's like literally the first warning sign is like making a plan. Yeah. So this is also when she says George started sleeping her out. In India, George had become fascinated with the Indian divinity Krishna. And Krishna is usually portrayed surrounded by young maidens. Great. Boyd says George came back wanting to be some sort of Krishna figure. Quote, a spiritual being with lots of concubines. He actually said so. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for ruining the only beetle that I still liked. You know, I, do, I still like George. Yeah, I mean, it it's, could be worse. Like concubines, no, thank you. But even even in later in his life, he was very into free love, and that was just his. That was his bag. Yeah, and if you're upfront about it, and that's what you're into, like whatever, it's yeah. fine. Okay, so she writes. I was friendly with a French girl who was going out with Eric Clapton. She was always flirtatious with George, but so were a lot of the girls, and he, of course, loved it. Then she and Eric broke up. Eric told her to leave, and she came to stay with us. She didn't seem remotely upset about Eric and was uncomfortably close to George. Something was going on between them, and I questioned George. He told me my imagination was running away with me, that I was paranoid. So one night around 1969, Patty takes her little sister Paula to a Delaney and Bonnie and Friends show. And Delaney and Bonnie were mentioned earlier, but they were a husband and wife-led ensemble that had signed onto the Beatles' Apple Records by now. And Eric Clapton was a huge fan and would sometimes play with them. After the show, they all went out drinking, and when they went back to the hotel, they left Paula dancing with Eric. I just want to—I just want to make a quick clarification: would often play with them, as in his band and their band would play together, or would often play with them, as in he would play in their band. Eric would play in their band with them. Gotcha. Yeah. So after the show, they all went out drinking, and then when they left to go back to the hotel, they left Paula dancing with Eric. And Boyd said George was furious with him. He was very protective of Paula. Paula is Patty's younger sister. Yeah. And not too long after, Paula moved in with Eric. Okay. Yeah. So that was 1969. And then in 1970, Boyd says she opened a letter one morning addressed to Patty Harrison that had express and urgent written at the top and bottom. She writes, inside, I found a small piece of paper. In small, immaculate writing with no capital letters, I read, as you have probably gathered, my own home affairs are a galloping farce, which is rapidly degenerating day by intolerable day. It seems like an eternity since I last saw or spoke to you. It's Patty now talking about the note. It began, Dearest L, he needed to ascertain my feelings. Did I still love my husband? Or did I have another lover? More crucially, did I still have feeling in my heart for him? He had to know, and he urged me to write, much safer. 
and tell him, please do this, whatever it may say, my mind will be at rest, all my love, comma, E. So can I ask a question? Yeah. What's with the L? Okay. Her name is Patricia. Right. So it's unclear to me whether or not Boyd knew this at the time, but Clapton's private nickname for her became Layla, which came from this um, epic poem by a Persian poet, Nizami Ganjavi, and the poem is called Layla and Majnun. Here's choreographer Mark Morris talking about the poem. Why, why choreographer Mark Morris? Morris made a musical based on the poem. Ah. Layla and Majnun throughout the, the Middle East, North Africa, South Asia. Everybody knows this story. Yeah, everybody. It's part of the culture. The character is actually named Kais, Layla and Kais. But because he's so, he's driven mad by his love for Layla from childhood, he's labeled crazy. Love crazed Majnun. That's a term that's used all over the world, the Muslim world specifically, to mean someone who's out of his mind in love. So the overall, it's like this forbidden love affair, and he's loved crazy over her, so that's why he calls her Layla. Yes. Kind of makes me like the song better. At least there's some like poetry in it, as opposed to, I cannot stress this enough, hey there, Delilah. <laughs> what do you mean? That's such a wonderful poem. I mean, sure, but like we talked a, a little bit last time about how like he uh, some of this could be avoided if he used a different name. Yeah. And Clapton at least is like thinking ahead. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Patty, you got me on my knees. Patty is not quite the same. Mm, it just doesn't have quite the ring to it. Mm-mm. All right, so uh, Patty reads this in the kitchen, and George is there, and some other friends are around, and they just think it's some like from a random weirdo. Because she's a beetle wife. She gets hate mail and weird letters all the time. Sure, sure, sure. But she knows. No, she didn't know. Oh, she didn't so know. So she showed it to George. And they're all laughing about it. And like immediately forget about it. But then later that night, the phone rang. And it was Eric. And he's asking her, did you get my letter? <laughs> did you get my letter? Oh, my God. Yeah. So. Meanwhile, he's like fucking her sister right now. Yeah, who lives with him. Which he says is a farce. Right. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. And he had another girl living with him named Alice, which I wrote about later on in the, down in my notes. But yeah, there was a young girl. We'll get to it. I forget how old she was. I think he, she was 16 when he no. started sleeping with her. So no, he please. has Alice and Paula in his house. This weirdly, there's like, like this, I, I, this happened to my friend, kind of. What? So not the 16. Well, there was the 16 year old involved, but like we were all 16. So when I was in high school, I ha had and currently have a friend named Caroline and there was this dude that was like obsessed with her in love with her and she was not interested in him and so he wound up dating and later married her older sister. Ew. Yeah. How did the so sister we, feel? Uh, not great, Bob, but we always kind of quietly referred to her as second place Caroline. So that's fucking disgusting. What's Caroline's sister's name? Sarah. Caroline. I'm already confused about which one is which. It's the same fucking Ca name. Yeah. Caroline's sister's name is Sarah. And I think that they divorced. Woof. I hope, I hope they divorced. Okay. Okay. So Eric's on the phone. Back to the kitchen. Eric's on the We're phone. We're back to Eric the kitchen. Calls her. She answers the phone. So I'm sick of second place Patty. <laughs> Paula. Yeah. Patty. Paula is second place Patty. Did you Correct. get my letter? I don't think so. What letter? 
what an awkward phone conversation that must have been. <laughs> and then this is what she wrote in the book. And then the penny dropped. Was that from you? I had no idea you felt that way. It was the most passionate letter anyone had ever written me, and it put our relationship on different footing. It made the flirtation all the more exciting and dangerous. But as far as I was concerned, it was just a flirtation. Okay. okay. Let's talk about this. This was not a passionate note. This was the equivalent no. of a drunk text. Yes. I don't know. I, I, I don't know what else to say. This was a weird drunk text. Um, I still love you. A thing that you never knew. Right. Unless she's just telling horrible storyteller and yeah. lying to us. None of it makes sense. Like she, ha- she hasn't even explained any of this. I mean, it's quite possible that she like had a quiet thing for him, and and this this wasn't a passionate letter, but it 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 kind of confirmed some things that she had been uh, quietly hoping for for years or whatever. I don't know. Okay. It's it's there's a lot there's a lot happening there's a lot happening there. Okay. So yeah. Okay. So this note happens. It's weird, and then she's all like tingling in her What's weird lady bits. Mm-hmm. great way to say that go on <laughs> so from time to time during the spring of 1970 boyd and eric start or continue hanging out they're hanging out okay boyd boyd one patty boyd. patty patty boyd and eric are hanging out now the note worked george is definitely sleeping around bringing other women into the home and free love whatever yeah. free for him and free for him and as we know Merrick had multiple women in his home too. Paula and Alice. So from again from Wonderful Tonight. Once we met under the clock at the cobbled Guilford High Street. He had just come There's a lot of things happening under clocks at train stations. Yeah, I was wondering, I'm like, is this just what happens in England? Uh, he had just come back from Miami and brought me a pair of bell-bottom trousers, hence the song mm. Bell-Bottom Blues. No. He was tanned, gorgeous, and irresistible, but I resisted. <laughs> good, good on you, Patty. Another of our secret meetings took place in London one afternoon. The domino- Under a clock. Under a clock. The dominoes had finally left Hurtwood Edge. That was Eric's manner. So the Dominoes had finally left Hurtwood Edge and moved into a flat in South Kensington, which that afternoon was empty. Eric took me there because he had wanted me to listen to a song he had written. He switched on the tape machine, turned up the volume, no, no. and played me the most powerful, moving no. song Stop. I'd ever heard. And that song was cocaine. <laughs> it was Layla, a song about a man who falls hopelessly in love with a woman who loves him but is unavailable. He had read the story in a book he had been given by a mutual friend, Ian Dallas. Ian had given me a copy, too. It was called The Story of Layla and Manjnoon, and was determined I should know how he felt. He had written the song at home and recorded it in Miami with the dominoes. He played it for me two or three times, each time watching my face intently for my reaction. Two or three times? That song is so long! So long. My first thought was, oh god, everyone is going to know who this is. I felt uncomfortable that he was pushing me in a direction I wasn't certain I wanted to go. But the song got better for me with the realization that I inspired such passion, such creativity. I could resist no longer. Patty Boyd, a messy bitch who lives her drama. (laughs) Um, Okay, so we're going to take a quick intermission from the love triangle. 
and talk about why is the song so long? We know that the song was so long because there was a long piano coda that comprised the second half. Yeah, it's more than half of the song. And that section is credited to drummer Jim Gordon. Okay. Who had worked as a session drummer on some of the greatest records to come out of Los Angeles in the 1960s, according to to the American songwriter. Meaning he was a member of? The Wrecking Crew. The Wrecking Crew. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Clapton told Guitar Player Magazine, Jim Gordon had been secretly going back to the studio and recording his own album without any of us knowing it. We caught him playing this one day and said, come on, man, come on, can we have that? So he was happy. This being the piano. Yeah. Yeah. So he was happy to give us that part. And we made the two pieces into one song. New York City broadcasting executive Linda Winnick interviewed Domino's keyboardist Bobby Whitlock, who had his own recollection and opinion about the piano piece. Again, this is from the American Songwriter. That piano part, in my opinion, has nothing to do with the song that Eric wrote entirely himself. It's, Agreed. It's about his experience, not Jim's. Jim took that piano melody from his ex-girlfriend Rita Coolidge. I know, because in the Delaney's and Bonnie days, I lived in John Garfield's old house in the Hollywood Hills, and there was a guest house with an upright piano in it. Rita and Jim were up there in the guest house and invited me to join in on writing the song with them called Time. I didn't hear it as rock and roll, and I bowed out of the little songwriting session. I still don't think that it's rock and roll and really has no place on Eric's incredibly soul on the line for the world to hear song about his world and his experience. Jim took the melody from Rita's song and didn't give her credit for writing it. Her boyfriend ripped her off. That piano coda taints the integrity of this incredibly beautiful song. It has no place in it. I think Layla rocks without the piano on it. I mean, good, good, good on you. Womack, Jim, what's his name? <laughs> Whitlock. Whitlock. Good on you, Whitlock. I, I, I essentially agree with you. And so, so. Fly. Surprise. Spread your surprise, wings. Surprise, everyone. Little baby bird. Surprise, everyone. <laughs> Famous Monsters, part four. Famous Monsters, part four. So, while all of this stuff is happening with Eric, Patty, Paula, George, etc. Across the pond, as they say. <laughs> Some other shit was going down. So this is our, our, fa- our famous monsters detour. And this will probably end part one of the episode, is my guess. Jim Gordon, not to be confused with the Batman character, was born in Los Angeles on New Year's Day of 1945. By the way, uh, Lindsay and I stuck to strict guidelines, so I know nothing about the Eric, Patty, (laughs) George love triangle, and she knows nothing about what's going to happen. Literally nothing. Well, okay. I mean, I've heard rumors. A little bit. You know that there's a monster. Yeah. Yeah. So he was raised in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles, and uh, he passed up a music scholarship to UCLA in order to begin his professional drumming career at the age of 17 in 1963. And he was backing the Everly Brothers, not to be confused with the Righteous Brothers. And he went on to become one of the most sought-after recording session drummers in L.A., and he was a protege of drummer Hal Blaine, who you might remember from our ronette's episode how blaine is the guy that mi- potentially missed the beat oh yeah that guy jim gordon performed on many notable recordings including pet sounds by the beach boys gene clark and the gosden brothers uh the notorious bird brothers by the birds classical gas uh he was he drummed on the 
these boots are made for walking. You're so vain. Great and songs. Imagine. Great songs. The record, not the because there's no drum beat in Imagine, but he drummed on Imagine the record, not Imagine the song. But boots walking and you're so vain. Love it. Yeah. So he was the guy, he was the man, right? Mm-hmm. And at the height of his career, Gordon was reportedly so busy as a studio musician that he flew back and forth from L.A. to Las Vegas every day to do two or three recording sessions and then to return to L- to Vegas at night to play an evening show at Caesars Palace. Holy shit. Yeah. So he was he was the, the drummer to end all drummers. A busy guy busy guy and in 1969 and 1970 he toured as a part of the backing band for delaney and bonnie where clapton was sometimes playing right Mm -hmm. as we as we talked about it so clapton eventually took over the group's rhythm section he he like stole this is this is a an interesting uh motif in clapton's life but he stole the group's rhythm section Gordon on drums, Carl Rattle on the bass, and Bobby Whitlock, who's the keyboardist, to form Derek and the Dominoes. That band's first studio work was for George Harrison's All Things Must Pass three disc, you know, masterpiece, whatever record. Wait, 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 wait. What band? Basically, Derek and the Dominoes, right? So Bobby Whitlock, Carl Rattle, Jim Gordon, Eric Clapton were the backing band the house band for George Harrison's All Things Must Pass. Got it. Which was also 1970, so they actually recorded three incredible records in 1970. All Things Must Pass, Layla and Other Assorted Love Songs, and and Clapton's first solo record. And he was like a full-fledged member of Derek and the Dominoes as opposed to just a session musician, so he played, he like toured with them in the US and UK as they were doing their, their Layla thing. Gordon. Gordon yeah. did, mm-hmm. yeah. And so he was credited for contributing the piano coda for Layla, which is the entire second half of the song that I don't really care for. And as you mentioned, Bobby Whitlock says the coda was actually written by Jim Gordon's ex-girlfriend, Rita Coolidge. Yes. You said that it was a Rita Coolidge song called what? Time. So have you listened to Time? I would like to now. Yeah. So. Whitlock says that Jim took the melody for Rita's song, didn't give her credit for writing it. Her boyfriend ripped her off. And then Graham Nash of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, who later dated Rita Coolidge, he corroborated Whitlock's claim in his memoir. And then time, the actual song Time was not released. Priscilla Coolidge, Rita's sister, released the song with Booker T. Jones, another member of the Wrecking Crew, in 1973 on their album chronicles so three years after layla comes out time finally sees the light of day great and and this is time cannot wait so i take a little bit of exception to Whitlock saying that he stole the melody. Because it's Cause not. He stole everything. Yeah. The whole thing. The, the chords and he transposed the melody into piano. Yes. So she wrote this nine months prior to Layla coming out 
This version of Time is actually performed by Priscilla Coolidge, Rita Coolidge's sister, and it was... Priscilla Coolidge was married to Booker T. Jones of Booker T. and the MGs. They released a record called Chronicle and finally put time on it, giving Rita her final credit. Or her, in what the, year? The credit that she was deserving in, two, in 1973. Okay. Priscilla. But it's still not the credit that she's deserving because it's Layla. not on Layla. Right, exactly. So we talked a bit about muses yep earlier and interpolation at the the top of the show and this is the this is the the sinister side of muses right it's not that he was inspired by how amazing Rita Coolidge was as a person to write the song he just took it and gave it to his buddy and gave it to his buddy (laughs) and his buddy like caught him playing it and was like, is this yours? And he's like, yeah, it's mine. So, you know, clearly there's like gender politics involved yeah. with with why this, why Rita Coolidge is not a household name when it comes to Layla specifically. Because spoilers, she literally has never received credit for it. Yeah, it's uh, pretty egregious. Yeah, and there's interviews that I found uh, on YouTube with her talking about it, and she uh, wrote about she it wrote a, in her own memoir. Yeah, we're gonna okay. we're gonna talk. We're, I'm gonna read a bit of her memoir. Okay, cool. So this is from Billboard. Uh, that the pull quote is from Rita Coolidge, and she says, "Until now, I've never told of how I helped write one of the greatest rock songs ever." So this is from Billboard. Over a long career in music, Rita Coolidge is known for her numerous hit songs and extensive studio work across pop, rock, country, and more. Her place in history is secure, but even with a body of accomplishments dating back to the early 70s, one particular song continues to vex the Grammy winner. She claims that she was unfairly denied songwriting credit on the iconic hit Layla. And she wrote in her memoir called Delta Lady. That's the title of the memoir. She details a songwriting session with Jim Gordon, the drummer of Derek and the Dominoes, who went on to, quote, co-wrote and record Layla alongside Eric Clapton. Okay, pause. Yes. Um, So far, we've really only introduced Rita as Gordon's ex-girlfriend. Yes. She's clearly a human being with lots of accomplishments on her own. So who is Rita? So... I actually want to talk about Rita Coolidge's many boyfriends as well, but Rita Coolidge was a backup singer for Delaney and Bonnie. Yeah. And friends. Delaney and Bonnie and friends. Yeah. So, so she was singing around Memphis. She was discovered by Delaney and Bonnie. And then she was a backup singer for all kinds of folks, including Joe Cocker, Harry Chapin, Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, Dave Mason, Graham Nash, and Stephen Stills. Right. Right, and she was featured on the um, the album "Mad Dogs and Englishmen," which is a Joe Cocker album. "Mad Dogs and Englishmen" is the is the tour and the album that Joe Cocker released. He does a song called "Superstar," which is the lead vocal is taken by Rita Coolidge, right? So, so he's like, "Hey, here's Rita Coolidge doing Superstar," and the writers of Superstar are Leon Russell and Bonnie Bramlett of Delaney and Bonnie. Right. Okay. And yep. mm-hmm. Coolidge did not receive songwriting credit for Superstar, which later became a hit for the Carpenters. 
What the hell? Exactly. So this is from this is from a relics.com article called Rita Coolidge reflects on Delaney and Bonnie's Mad Dog Ma- Delaney and Bonnie, Mad Dogs and Englishmen, Layla, and more. And essentially she says that she had a hand in writing that song Superstar and never got her her due there either so this is like a this is a recurring Recurring theme in her life yeah and so her greatest success was in the late 70s where she had four consecutive top 25 hits that were all covers so your love keeps lifting me higher and higher the jackie wilson song we're alone which was originally boz skaggs the temptations the way you do the things you do and you by Marsha Hines. Okay. So her whole vibe is like quasi Native American, and she's she's Scottish and Cherokee, but has been accused of cultural appropriation and of her like Cherokee side. And specifically, when she was dating one of the members of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, she had romantic liaisons with both Stephen Stills and Graham Nash and Coolidge leaving Stephen Stills for Graham Nash has been cited as a contributing factor behind the initial breakup of Crosby Stills blah, Nash and Young. Blah 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 blah. Exactly, right? So this is <laughs> so we blame women for bands breaking up and also there's like a secondary love triangle inside of the larger love triangle that we're talking about. But she leaned it's into- literally just dudes being shady trying to stick their dicks in their friends women sure in the women that surround their friends well it gets a little <laughs> it gets a little bit worse because okay. like i said she kind of played up her native american heritage and has been accused of cultural appropriation by the cherokee nation um or by members of the cherokee nation they're not a monolith but there's a song called cowboy movie on david crosby's album if i could only remember my name in which he refers to her as, quote, the sweet little Indian girl named Raven. What? Yeah, so, not great. He's, no. How much Cherokee does she have in her? Uh, Half, it seems like. I guess I have mixed feelings about this. You know, this is not Elizabeth Warren situation. This is like she's 50-50. So... This is like if you're you're not Cherokee, but you're not white, like you if you're half and half, you're never anything. Everyone's always giving you shit for being not pure enough. Like, I don't understand. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know. The, 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 sh- the short answer is I don't know. I guess maybe because she was probably living like a Westerner. Yeah, she could pass when she wanted to potentially. And then. You know, she seems like she came from a place of privilege. Yeah. And yet she's still a woman and getting abused by the system that's stealing songs from her. Right. Uh, She's still a woman of color who's getting used and abused by the white man. So (laughs) after after she dated Jim Gordon of Derek and the Dominoes, she married Chris Christopherson in 1973 and they were together until 1980 and she won two grammys with him but the thing i want to focus on is her relationship with jim gordon yes and so this is a excerpt from her memoir called delta lady one afternoon in 1970 jim gordon came over to my house in hollywood sat down at the piano and played for me a chord progression that he just composed most people know jim as one of la's top session drummers 
in the early 70s. He played on everything from Glenn Campbell's Wichita Lineman to the Beach Boys Pet Sounds album. But he was also a capable pianist. And because he was exposed to so many styles of music, he had a well-developed sense of melody and structure. The chords Jim played for me were in the key of C sharp and built to a high note refrain before the progression repeated. There was something haunting about it, especially when the bright major chords suddenly dipped to the B-flat seventh for the refrain bum 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 part of the song um it also it also seemed deeply familiar like when you meet someone you're immediately attracted to who seems at once both exotic and approachable i loved jim's chord progression but at the moment that's all it was a stunning riff not a song and as we played it a second progression suddenly came to me a counter melody in the key of g that answered and resolved the tension of jim's chords and built to a dramatic crescendo that bridged the song's beginning and ending i wrote lyrics that reflected the melody's sense of fatalism and hope quote my darling believe me don't ever leave me we've got a million years to show that our love is real and jim and i ended up calling it time and i taped a demo we played this we played the song for Eric Clapton when we were in England touring with Delaney and Bonnie. I remember clearly sitting at the piano at Olympic Studios while Eric listened to me play it all the way through. So does Bobby Whitlock, Delaney and Bonnie's ace piano player who was on the session. Jim and I left a tape cassette of the demo with Eric, hoping of course that he might cover it. Nothing came of it, and I largely forgot about it. But our song with Jim's wistful melody and our and my sweet counter melody would come to haunt me there for the rest of my life. I was at AM Records one afternoon in 1971 after I'd finished my first album, getting promotional photos taken. The photographer had turned on a radio while he was work while he worked. I wasn't paying much attention, but suddenly noticed that the song that was playing sounded familiar. I was thinking, wait, I've heard that song before. <laughs> the photographer was telling me to pose this way and that, but all I could hear was that song. Suddenly it dawned on me. The song on the radio was my song, except for I'd never recorded it. The veins that must have been popping out on my neck. I cried, that's my music. That's my music. It was time. The song Jim and I had written and played for Eric at Olympic, except for now it was an instrumental as played by Bobby Whitlock, Carl Rattle, Eric Clapton, Dwayne Allman, and Jim Gordon, collectively known as Derek and the Dominoes. The song was Layla, and time had been appropriated as the soon-to-be-famous piano coda that gives Eric's greatest song its bittersweet denouement. When I got my hands on the album, Layla, and other assorted love songs, I looked at the label. Layla was credited to E. Clapton and Jay Gordon. Uh -huh. No mention of our Coolidge. I was infuriated. What they'd clearly done was take the song Jim and I had written, jettisoned the lyrics, and tacked it on to the end of Eric's song. It was almost the same arrangement. I have to admit, it sounded stunning, juxtaposing Eric's desperate verses about his unrequited love for Patty Boyd, his best friend George Harrison's wife. <laughs> and the codas make that my codas, wistful, winding melody was a masterstroke. Following Eric's impassioned singing and guitar playing, inspired by the torture of falling into a forbidden love, the coda was nothing less than bliss, the sound of love fulfilled, a critic noted 40 years after the song was recorded. Even without my words, Jim's and my original intent shines through. That didn't make being left out of the songwriting credits any easier. I told my producer, David Anderley, and A&M's co-founder, Jerry Moss, about not getting credit on Layla. In fact, I told everyone I knew. <laughs> I finally called Robert Stigwood, Eric's manager, and he said, you're going to go up against Stiggy? 
the Robert Stigwood organization? Who do you think you are? You're a girl singer. What are you going to do? <gasps> You're just a girl. I talked to David and he was sympathetic, but said, you know, you don't have any money to fight this. Well, I would true. if I would get my fucking money, and my writing credit. <laughs> also, the Layla album was not especially a big hit when it was released That's in also 1971. True. Thanks for reminding us. And nobody knew that Layla was going to become Eric's anthem. Right. But that was just beside the point. I deserve credit for my work. I never wanted the money. I just wanted my name on it. When I later learned that Stiggy had been hung out of his office window by a fellow manager's goons to dissuade him from poaching an act, I wanted to applaud. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're glossing over something major here. So this guy, Robert Stigwood, was trying to poach this some musician and that musician's manager hired goons to hang him out a window holy shit risky business yes this is this is all back to rita coolidge there was no way that jim could have forgotten we written the song together oh he just forgot he fell asleep yeah he fell asleep it was fine if i sound bitter i'm not Layla has generated hundreds of thousands of dollars in songwriting royalties, maybe millions over the years for Eric. But I know that part of Jim's share actually went to his daughter, Amy. And that finally was how I was able to deal with it. Just knowing that she had something from her dad. Oh, I almost cried. Until now, I never told of how I helped write one of the greatest rock songs ever recorded. Layla has a lot of fathers. In addition to Eric's and Jim's contribution, Dwayne Allman may have adapted part of the song's guitar riff from Albert King's vocals on as the years go passing by. But I think everyone, I think it's time that everyone knows that Layla also has a mother. Aww. Okay. Why do you think the money went to Jim's daughter, Amy? Well, I know why. Why? Because Jim is in jail. Because Jim is in jail for murdering his mother. (laughs) next week on lyrics for lunch famous monsters continues with the story of jim gordon murderer and don't forget the thrilling conclusion of the patty boyd george harrison and eric clapton love triangle and weirdly priscilla was also murdered by her husband michael siebert in 2014 in october of 2014 Priscilla Coolidge, the singer that you just heard sing Time, was killed by her husband, Michael Siebert, in a murder-suicide. Who's Michael Siebert? Michael Siebert was Priscilla's husband. That's it? Yeah, that's it. So what are we going to go out with on this week? I have an idea. Okay, what's your idea? We're going to go out this week on a song by my friend Clinton Deegan and his band A Bit Much, and the song is called All I Want, parentheses, is George Harrison's Wife. Perfect. So where can people find us on the internet? Find us on the internet at Lyrics for Lunch on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, we have a website. It's called LyricsForLunch.com where you can send us money if you so are so inclined. Leave us a rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find us. People, you know, if you love the show, let us know. Send us an email at LyricsForLunch at gmail.com. And tune in next week for the thrilling conclusion of the story of Layla. Got me on my knees. Go.
still not take your bloody nose She grins at me through rabbit's teeth The blood flavor of my friends can see it is there Ooh. Patty's womb 